Okay. Uh, I have a new handout, as I mentioned. We kind of stopped with the blood. And that, I suppose, was too bad considering that red is one of the main colors of Christmas. I'm not sure why. The blood of Jesus has been all but worshipped by a Christianity. Uh, the hymnal that I grew up with had a different version, as I recall, of the same hymn, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The new hymnal, the, it's not new anymore, but it, it's, it's newer to me. Um, our current hymnal has the same hymn, but with, I think, an additional stanza. And that was one line of that stanza says uh, something about, I sacrifice it all to your blood. I, or I think it's to thy blood. Well, you only sacrifice something to a deity, do you not? Uh, and that sounds a little bit like hematolatry, a bit of worship of the blood. And and many people have have raised real issues and questions about the blood and what it means. Um, I think of uh, Paul Huback, who was uh, a pastor in the 50s. I think it was the 1950s when he did an evangelistic series somewhere in Central California. And uh, he preached one night on the death of Jesus and its in significance for salvation. And a woman came up to him afterwards and said, uh, said that she wasn't a Christian. And she says, you Christians worship a bloodthirsty God. And that made him stop and think. And, and because of that question and because of his uh, really taking it seriously and, and probing it and, and thinking it through, it brought about a really major change in the way some of us do theology. It's actually the, the kind of the historical core of uh, what has led to a different approach to atonement and salvation, one that is very biblical, but which requires a little more digging below the surface to get to. So uh, we're going to look at the blood today, and that may be all we get done. Because uh, now, let's see. I'm looking around at my at those who have taken classes from me. I think, Christina, you're the only one here today that has gone through this handout, so you're the only one bored. Uh, <laughs> so let's take a look at this. Uh, the first text, uh, what I did is I roved through the Bible, looking at all the texts and references that had to do with blood and attempting to understand their significance and what they mean. And I, the earliest reference to blood is Genesis 4.10. Abel's blood cries out to God from the ground. Now we've covered this recently in this class, this text and its significance. Who, now the blood crying out, what does that mean? What's the significance of blood crying out from the ground? You remember? I know it's been many weeks since we met. Didn't it mean crying out for um, vengeance? Yeah, it cries out for vengeance. Who's doing the crying in terms of literal terms? This is very uh, much uh, what we would call metaphoric speech. 
Who's who's doing the crying out for revenge? Humanity. That's that's what I think. Um, now it's possible that, given the closeness proximity of ancient humanity to animism, it's possible that they actually did see the blood as crying out. But it cries out from the ground. The reason I think it's humanity is because the ground there is significant. It's the same word as used in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 2. Uh, um, actually, in Genesis 2, where God made the first man from the ground. And then after the fall, God says to the man and the woman, uh, or Actually, he says it to the man. Dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. You shall return to the ground, he says. From out of it you were taken. So when you have the imagery of ground, it really represents humanity. So humanity is crying out to God for revenge. Does God take revenge in this story? This is the Cain and Abel story. Does God take revenge? No. Now, we established that he actually protects Cain from revenge, which is God's really uh, primary stance, his initial stance against violence. He will not enact violence unless he has to. And, and that has to, has to be understood appropriately. So... Um, Hebrews 12:24 that's a, a quantum leap there but it refers to Abel Jesus blood speaks more graciously than Abel's how does it speak you see blood now has a voice and if it has a voice it has meaning it is symbolic of something uh so it is not the literal blood that is so significant. It's what the blood represents that's so significant. Significant. And, and I hope that, uh, we keep this in mind because our tendency as human beings is to re- be very literalistic when we read the Bible and we forget that we're reading literature and that literature often has metaphors. Um, and that we need to understand what is symbolic and what is re- literal and real. Uh, so, that's all I wanted to establish with this first one is that the blood of sacrifices and the blood of Jesus both mean something beyond themselves. And we have to ask the question, what do they mean? Any questions before we go on? Or observations? Okay. So the second part is, uh, this is the shorthand way we can get to this. If, if all we did was number two, we could just, finish with that and go on, but I want to reinforce number two. Uh, the shorthand way to understand the blood is to look at Leviticus 9.4 and Leviticus 17.11.14. So Genesis 9.4. I have verse 4 here, but I think it's verses 4 and 5. Uh, let's see. Tiffany, would you go first, please? But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. 
I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Okay. Um, it is verse 4. You should not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. So the the life of flesh is its blood. Now, you can you can look at that biologically, simply that uh, if we lose our blood, we lose our life. The heart stops beating because it, it's the pump for the blood. And uh, without the blood, it can't pump anything. So uh, bleeding to death is a way to die. It's not the only way we die, though, is it? And I have not yet figured out an answer to the question, why is the blood chosen as the representative of life? I mean, isn't breath life? Uh, <clears throat> when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, man, Adam became a living being. Uh, couldn't we use breath as a symbol of that? Why blood? And the only, the only answer I think I can find, well, maybe I should toss that out to you. Do you have an answer for that question? It just seems that blood might be more concrete. It's something you can see, whereas your breath, you can't see it. It's hard to imagine and really make metaphors over life when the breath is so intangible. Okay. Um, maybe the physiological purposes of blood. Um, I know that oxygen is in blood, mm-hmm. and I'm not a biology major or anything, so I don't know all the... The, what it, blood functions as far as in the body, and um, uh, so I think physiologically there may be some things that uh, some symbolize, yes, of life. Yeah. Okay. Well, like like I said, like scientifically, like you know, blood actually can provide more than breath can because you know, like infants in the womb don't mm-hmm. breathe but they're still living or they still, like, manage to form and and become children. And I think that, like, blood is just, it carries so much, and it's throughout our entire body, and it's just representative of everything that's within us. It carries so much that it, I think it's a very apt symbol of life. Okay. It's also graphic, isn't it? When you see blood, I mean, how many, how much of the population can handle the sight of blood, do you think? <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a, a housemate one time who was going to be in, entering nurses' training, and uh, I managed to slice my finger to the bone. <laughs> oh, don't ever try cutting a Macintosh apple with a, a kitchen knife instead of a, I mean, a, a table knife instead of a kitchen knife. Uh, <laughs> I had my finger right below it, and it, I was struggling to cut this very, very dense apple. And finally, it moved, and it moved very swiftly. <laughs> so she had to take me to, uh, not ER, uh, she took me to the little local Andrews University clinic, and they stitched me up. But I remember her saying, oh, I can't handle the sight of blood, but I've got to get used to this. <laughs> Uh, blood hasn't hasn't particularly bothered me either. I I don't have a real a problem with it. But um, anyway, uh, blood is something graphic, something that that really typifies the horror 
of death and dying. Uh, so I think for all of those reasons, uh, blood is very significant. Okay, let's look at Leviticus 17, 11 to 14. Okay. You, you want to read? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof, and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh, the blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. So the blood is the life, and when you shed blood, you shed the life. So one thing we can deduce is that blood represents death. Is that all? Whose death and whose blood is, is represented by the sacrificial system? Christ's blood. So what is Christ's blood? If Christ's blood represents his life and thus his death, what does his life represent? And this is, this is where I think, uh, we can find some real meaning for this. So, um, first, uh, John 1, 4. In him was life and the life was the light of all people. You can read five too. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So in him was life, blood. And the life, blood, was the light of men. Uh, I need to change versions now. (laughs) I think uh, life was the light for all people is what the Common English Bible has. so if it's the life is the if the life is the light of man, what is light? It's still a metaphor. What is light? Truth. Oh, you're pointing to what I have. Yes, I have it right here in front of you. Uh, light illuminates. A light enables us to see. So you could say it isn't exactly the truth, but it is what enables us to see the truth. So it could be. What? Well, let's just ask the question. What enables us to see the truth? Um, an unbiased perspective of this situation. Okay, an openness and willingness. Yes. What and what? What can enable us to become willing and open to see the truth? We could say the Holy Spirit. But does the Holy Spirit manipulate us? How does the Holy Spirit work? I, I know I, my style of teaching Sabbath school class historically has been to ask questions and make people think. <laughs> Any ideas? What enables, what does the Holy Spirit use to enable us to see the light? 
It's a word I'm thinking of that starts with E. You scientists in the room should be able to figure this out. Evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Evidence is what enables us to see the truth. When a person is deceived, to undeceive them, you don't just pound it into their heads that you're deceived and, and you better believe. No, you convince them that they're deceived by presenting them evidence. And yes, they may reject the evidence out of hand. That's a little more than deception then. That is uh, a stubbornness, uh, closed-mindedness, hard-heartedness, as the Bible puts it. Uh, but in those who don't have that stubbornness and that unwillingness, um, who simply are deceived, uh, evidence is is very illuminating as to what the truth is. Now, you don't need light unless you're in the dark. Is that correct? So this assumes if Jesus came to be the light, that we're in the dark. And what did he come to be the light for? What did he come to illuminate? Well, let's go down to verse... 18. And Christina, why don't you go ahead and read that verse too? No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Okay. So this light is a light to reveal the Father, right? Um, so Jesus came to give us the evidence of the truth about the Father. And that is the light. And as I said, we could stop right there and say that's the meaning of the blood. But we have to say, be a little more specific. Of all the lies that Satan spread about the character of God, which one does the blood answer? And I'm going to leave that hanging. Okay. Hopefully we'll have the answer to the question. Um, by the end of this. Uh, okay, so um, there's other ways. There's a longer way to get to the same fact. And we we talk about Christ's blood involving the covenant. And let me explain how anciently that worked. The the biblical covenant covenants were were basically parallel forms to ancient Near Eastern treaties. Uh, usually a treaty between a suzerain king and a vassal, but it could also be a covenant between a, a, an ally and an ally called brotherhood treaties in ancient Near Eastern parlance. In some areas of the ancient Near East, the way they did a, a treaty was to cut it. In fact, the word, Hebrew word for cutting, for making a covenant is to cut a covenant. And you remember uh, Genesis 15 when God makes the covenant with Abraham and he has Abraham cut the animals in pieces and and put them up parallel to each other and then God, uh, God in the in the symbolism of a torch of a light again uh, moves among the animal parts. 
Uh, that's how he cut a covenant, and that's one of the ways in which they would cut a covenant. And what that ceremony meant is, I will keep my covenant, and I will take on the responsibility that if I do not keep my terms of the covenant, you have the right to cut me in pieces just as you cut this animal in pieces. Uh, it's amazing condescension on the part of God. But notice that it's the light. He move, he represents himself by light in that whole ceremony. So we still have the light and its meaning. So that's how they would do it. And in the Sinai covenant, Moses takes blood of a sacrificial animal and sprinkles it on the people saying, you have said you will keep the covenant. Therefore, I'm placing the responsibility on you that your blood will be spread uh, and sprinkled if you do not keep the terms of this covenant. So consequently, in three, four places in the New Testament, Jesus Blood is used in reference to the new covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. Or this is the new covenant in my blood. So he's, he's using this metaphor from antiquity, uh, that it took this bloodshed to establish the terms of the covenant and to get people to trust in him that he would actually keep his terms of the covenant. That's why this whole ceremony was done. Uh, it was to to render the person who who walked among the animal parts or who had the blood sprinkled on them trustworthy that they, they would really guard that covenant and keep it. Uh, because if they didn't, they incurred on them uh, the ability of the, of the people who, with whom they made the covenant uh, to slay, slay them. That's not where it ends. That's, that's simply the ancient understanding. But God, God is, is taking that and he's going to transform it in Jesus' death. So uh, what is the new covenant then? Let's look at um, Hebrews 8. 8 to 12. And this is merely a quotation of Jeremiah. And I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Sarah. Sierra, that's right. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declared the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Okay, so uh, here are the terms of the new covenant. Uh, He will put the law within them, write it on their hearts. He will be their God. You notice this is is the, the original form of covenant that God prefers. And that form is that he makes the promises and he keeps them and all we do is trust him to do it. 
And so all of these are God's promises. And uh, each person won't teach a neighbor or a brother or a sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least important of them to the most important because I will be, I will forgive their sins and I won't remember them anymore. Now, most people think that Jesus shed his blood to get forgiveness, that there was no forgiveness without it. And we need to, we need to look at that because the Old Testament makes it clear that God is one who forgives. He's one who bears our sins off, which is one way of saying forgiveness. Um, so if he's a forgiving God already, why does he need the blood in order to forgive? And that's something we have to discuss. But all of this, to me, is part of the blood. And, and, and knowing God as he is, of course, if the blood represents the life, which represents the light, which is the evidence of the truth, uh, <clears throat> then then the blood helps us to know God in some way. And we have to find out in what way. Okay, the next step in this is the is the uh, number of places that talk about Jesus' blood cleanse, cleansing and sanctifying. Uh, first John, we're not going to look these up, uh, but First John 1, 7 to 9 says, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we are faithful and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Notice it doesn't say he's merciful to forgive. He is faithful and just to forgive. Forgiveness is an act of justice in John. Um, and we have to ask why. Uh, Revelation 7.14 A multitude in heaven have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's not something we would do our laundry with. I've never heard of anybody using blood as a detergent. So how does that work? Hebrews 10.29 says that we are sanctified by the blood of the Lamb. So to wash the blood, wash our garments in the blood of the Lamb is to be sanctified. To be cleansed by the blood from all our sins is to be sanctified. And Hebrews 13 says, Jesus suffered to sanctify us by his own blood. So he, he shed his blood to sanctify us by it. What does that mean? Well, here we have the key. John 17, 17. Jesus prayed, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. So we're back to truth again. And we have to keep asking the question, what truth? 1 John 5, 6 to 12 is an illuminating passage because John talks about three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And it came to me one night when I couldn't sleep. Uh, that John's whole gospel has to do with these three metaphors or three elements, uh, the spirit, the water, and the blood. So in John 1, Jesus is baptized in water. John sees the spirit descend on Jesus. John 2, Jesus changes water into wine, a New Testament symbol of blood. 
John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus to be born of water and the Spirit. And there's an allusion to his death uh, in John 3.16. John 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman about the water of life. In John 5, Jesus heals a man apart from water. He was supposed to be healed by the water of the pool of Bethesda. Jesus heals him without his going into that water. So now we're making a shift away from water. And then John 6. Let's look at John 6 because I want to spend a little bit of time on. Let's see what verses we want to start with. Um, the first part of the chapter, if you scan through it, it uh, is about the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and and so that's that's the story of it. And then they decide to force Jesus to be king, and he has to send them away uh, in no uncertain terms, and, get in, and he goes off into a mountain and prays, and he commands his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee. And they had never heard him be so emphatic before. Uh, but it was the only way he could keep them from making him king. So the disciples get in the boat. They end up in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus walks on the water and calms the storm. And they get across the, on the other shore. But the crowd uh, figured out where he had gone. And they catch up with him. And in verse... 25, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And now we begin discussion. Uh, and again, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Roland, that's right. Um, would you read uh, read about five verses there uh, on verse 26? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food, which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. When they said to him, What shall we do, that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sends. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Okay. Um, Kayla, why don't you take up there and read until I say stop. Okay. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us the bread. Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up 
at the last day. Okay, um, uh, why don't we have uh, Tara read? At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can you say now, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay, let's uh, have Robert read. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the blood this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on the bread on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Okay. Um, I wanted to tell you how Jesus grossed these people out. Uh, verse fifty three. He said, I assure you, unless you gnaw on my flesh and drink my blood. The, the word there is uh, to gnaw. It's, it's not the word to eat. I mean, it's built on the word to eat. It's um, I'm trying to think of the Greek word now. But it, it, it's built on that, but it adds a preposition which means it intensifies the verb, so it becomes to gnaw, unless you gnaw on my flesh and drink my blood. He really grosses them out quite deliberately. Why do you think he did that? One of the problems Jesus has is the problem that we have as human beings, and that is with people's tendency to be over-literalistic and concrete. Um and not look for spiritual meaning. It was like they had no spiritual vision uh, to be able to see deeper meanings. Uh, So Jesus deliberately grosses them out. You have to gnaw on my flesh and eat my blood. And he intensifies it for a reason. Um, And let's move on in order to see that. Um, Verse 60, many of the disciples who heard this said, this message is harsh, who can hear it? Jesus knew the disciples were grumbling about this, and he says, does this offend you? What if you were to see the Son of Man going up where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life, and the flesh doesn't help you at all. It's not about eating my flesh, literally. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. 
And he doesn't even mention the blood. And all through this passage, Jesus has kept saying, it's the Father who draws you to me. It's the Father working through the evidence that I'm presenting in my life about what the, who the Father is that allows you to draw me, you to me. And that means that all of this, Jesus' flesh, his blood, his word, is intended to draw us to him. Does thinking that God needs blood in order to be appeased and forgive us draw us to him? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, that God needs blood to appease him for us to be drawn closer to him? To forgive us. Does that draw us close to him? Does knowing that? No. Just that's like static. Like... Um, that doesn't have any relationship aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, what kind of a relationship do you have with someone who has to be appeased by the blood of their son before they forgive you? Fear. Yeah. So what it, whatever this is, it's going to draw the truth that it reveals is going to draw us to God not push us away from him in terms of trust. So uh, from now on, John moves away from the water, the spirit. Well, not so much the spirit, but from the water and the blood. Uh, the metaphors change. In chapter 7, chapter 7 through 12, you have metaphors of blindness versus seeing, the good shepherd. Jesus washing his feet in water in John 13 returns us to water. And this is preparation now for his death, where we'll return to blood. Jesus promises the disciples to send the spirit of truth. Note that the spirit's function is to, to take the truths that Jesus exemplified and taught in his life and, and shed them in our minds and draw us t- to him through the truth. And Jesus clarifies in his prayer to his father, John 17, that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now we return to the blood. In John 19.34, Jesus' side is pierced. And he has there's two streams, water and blood. If blood is so important, if the blood of Jesus does so much, then what is what does the what do the gospels emphasize when it comes to Jesus' blood in terms of his death? Do they emphasize the scourging, the blood from the scourging? Do they emphasize the blood from the nails? Do they emphasize the blood from the crown of thorns? What blood do they emphasize? Well, there's only four places, four references to Jesus' blood in the Gospels. Two in Matthew, one in Luke, and one in John, none in Mark. The first one, Judas exclaims that he has shed innocent blood, and they refer to Judas's blood money, the field of blood to bury Judas. Now, the field of blood refers to, so the field of blood uh, was Judas's own blood because he hung himself. This is a, a generic kind of picture of Jesus' blood, that innocent blood. 
in, in uh, t- Matthew 27, Pilate washes his hands, declaring himself innocent of Jesus' blood. And the people respond that his blood will be on them and their children. This is, again, a generic reference. This is not a specific, concrete reference. It's a re- reference to his death. Luke 22:44 is the first reference we have to Jesus' own blood physically that he shed. And it's a reference to Jesus' sweat that came through his pores that was bloody. And there is a medical term for that, hematridrosis. And it's a medical condition in which one is so depressed and suffering such mental agony that they actually bleed through the pores of their forehead. Uh, and their brain, 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 I believe, bleeds. I had a student with that condition once. In John 19:34, Jesus' side is pierced and blood and water flow out. So the, the gospel writers do not emphasize the blood from his nails, the crown of thorns, the scourging. None of that is the blood that they focus on. They focus on the blood that begins Jesus' agony and ends it. What does that suggest? Since our time is out, I'll just tell you my perception of this. And you can read um, the rest of this handout for yourselves, which will tell you the same thing. But the significance of Jesus' blood is that he died from a broken heart. He died from mental agony. Now, why is that so significant? You remember that in the beginning, the most prominent lie that Satan got us to believe is that you will not surely die. Sin will not kill you. And what he has gotten humanity to believe since then is that if, if you won't die from sin, obviously you're going to die. If you die, you're going to die from the hands of God. That God is going to be the one who destroys you if you don't love him. Does that view draw us to God? Interest, not any better than believing he appeases uh, himself by his by the blood of his son. So Jesus' death demonstrates the truth that it is sin that leads to death, because Jesus dies not from the hands directly of his Father. The only participation the Father has is to leave his Son and allow the weight of sin to fall on him experientially. And it's sin and sin alone that takes his life through mental agony. Sin happens, sin is not out there. It's not, not a, a, a somehow, some kind of intangible enemy that fights us. Uh, although sometimes I think we act as if it is. Sin is in here. Sin is in our minds. Sin is what reaps destruction in our, in our lives. And so Jesus made it forever clear that God is not the executioner. He is not the one who kills people who don't love him. It is sin and sin alone that kills them. And God is in the business of rescuing people from sin. Now, does that truth have the power to draw us to it? That's the meaning for me of the blood. Any questions? Okay, I will leave you with that thought. 
and uh, we'll pick up and with our other document on the way. So uh, you want to bring that next week. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you have purposed in your mind to draw us from Satan's lies about you to the full light of the evidence of the truth about you. I thank you that you justify us, you, you forgive us and cleanse us because you are just, because you recognize that Satan duped us and that if we learn the truth about you, you can make us whole. Thank you for that truth. Thank you for all you've done to reveal it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Name, amen. Name, amen. Name, amen. Name, amen.